You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Hosea chapter 1. If you're having a hard time finding that, find the book of Daniel. Go to the end of it, and you'll find the book of Hosea right next to it. Uh, it's the first time I've ever um, preached through this book. Obviously, before sermons, we're not going to be going really, really deep. Uh, it would take uh, several weeks to, to walk through the book at that fashion, but we hope to give you a good overview of what's going on in this book and maybe prompt you to, to uh, do some studying in it on your own. If I were to ask you to take out your watch or your phone, whatever you kind of keep up with time with, and if I were to ask everyone to synchronize their watches or their phones, what we would do is we would all get our clocks ready and we would set the time. And then when I said go, we would all hit go or start or lock into that time. And the idea would be is that all of our watches and phones would be at the same point, minute by minute, second by second. So synchronizing means to take a lot of things and bring them all down into one thing. I'll give you an illustration. Uh, one of my favorite places to eat up in Fayetteville is a beautiful, lovely fast food restaurant called Moe's. And uh, there is a literal smorgasbord of uh, great items that I get to stuff, or not me personally, but the guy behind the counter gets to stuff into a burrito. Now, if you look at all of the things on that aisle, there is a lot of things you can put in a burrito. Now, you can start out with steak or chicken or pork, uh, but then as you go down the line, the options get pretty far and wide. So when my family goes, uh, all of us can get to the end of the line, and we've all got a burrito, one burrito, but every one of our burritos is absolutely completely different because each of us like Some of us like it more spicy. Some of it like us like it a little less uh, spicy, more sour cream, less sour cream. You, you get the idea. So it's taking a whole lot of little things and compressing it all down into one thing. And for Moe's, it's one glorious burrito at the end of that line. Now, you may be thinking, what does my watch and a burrito have to do with Hosea? Well, while it might be good to have all of our clocks synchronized, and it's definitely a good thing to have a burrito for Moe's, uh, it's not a good thing when in our faith we take a lot of things from a lot of different religions and try to make one religion out of it. And in fact, that's what a lot of folks are doing. And the younger you get, the, lower, the younger generations have done exactly that. It's like they walk through the line at Moe's and they, they see Christianity and they say, okay, I love Jesus and I love the fact that he loved everybody. So give me a little bit of love from Christianity. And then I'm going to move on down here to Buddhism. And I really like the family element of Buddhism, how that everybody's just one big family and, and how that there's, there's all these things about the afterlife that I like and there's not really a lot of judgment. So give me a little bit of that out of Buddhism. Then I'm going to go down the line a little further. I'm going to go to another religion and another religion. And I'm going to just kind of make my own burrito of religions. And at the end of the day, it's really no faith at all because there's no real God at all. That's called syncretism where we try to put everything together. And, and what the driving force behind that is you. As a matter of fact, all idolatry, which is in essence what we're talking about when we're worshiping some other less than God rather than Jehovah God, rather than Christ, 
when we worship that or when we give devotion and time that, what we're actually doing is putting ourselves in control. You see, all idolatry, and idolatry means the worship of a false god, all of that leads to worship of ourselves because who's in control? Well, you are. You get to have the little god that you want because it makes you feel good, but there's really no truth connected to it. There's no reality connected to it. And ultimately, you get to choose what's best. So when we look at the book of Hosea, you've got to understand the background and the context. I've got to spend just a little bit of time here to kind of set the stage for what's going on. Hosea is called to be a prophet. And he's going to be a prophet during a specific time in Israel where the kingdom has been split into two kingdoms. So we have a northern kingdom. And the basis of that kingdom is in a place called Samaria. We know a lot more about Samaria from the New Testament. And then we have a southern kingdom that is set up in Jerusalem, Judea, Judah, in that area. Now, there were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. Ten of those tribes go to the northern kingdom, and two of the tribes remain in the northern kingdom, or in the southern kingdom. And there is division between both of those kingdoms, and both of those kingdoms have turned towards false gods. Look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Hosea. It says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So Hosea gives us a time stamp, a historical time stamp, to say that his ministry was during the kings that were in the south. Those kings were Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And then the king of the north that, that Hosea has called to be a prophet or a minister to the king at that time was Jeroboam. He's actually Jeroboam II. Now, why is that important? Because if you go back to 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you will see chapter after chapter of kings that came to power, lost their thrones, died, and then a new king comes to power. And for the southern kings, you have several of those kings where it says about them that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, they did the right thing for the right reasons. They kept the people's focus and attention on God. Although every now and then there's a king that comes to power and it says this. It says that he did what was wrong. He, he led the people away from God. He, he did things that were sinful and wrong and evil. And in the northern kingdom in particular, there are more kings that do evil than kings that do the right thing. Jeroboam II was one of those kings, evil to the core. And at the same time he's king, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are having a great time of prosperity. They've got plenty of food. They've got plenty of money. Their harvests are doing great. They've got the land. And things could not be better for both of these kingdoms. After Jeroboam II, things begin to turn, it turns sour, turn really, really bad. And that's when Hosea begins his ministry. Now, the prophets are often asked to do some strange things. I'll give you some examples. Sometimes they, they give some illustrations, or the way they speak is a little bit weird. For example, Jeremiah, one of the major prophets, he, he's talking to the people of the southern kingdom, and he says he holds up this huge ceramic jug, and he throws it against a stone and breaks it into a million pieces, and he says to the southern kingdom, you're going to be exactly like this if you don't turn back to God. You, your nation is going to crumble if you continue to pursue false gods. Isaiah, he walked around naked for three years as a prophet. That's a little weird, right? And, and apparently it was in line with God's will is what God asked him to do. And, and, and his body 
and his, uh, him being nude was a, a testimony that God used against the nation that their sins were laid bare before God. What about Ezekiel? Man, there's some strange stuff happening in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was told by God to prophesy from his bed laying on his side for 430 days. The guy lays in bed. I think it's 30 days he lays on one side and then the rest of it he lays on the other. And he's prophesying from bed. And God uses him to speak a message. Ezekiel also in Ezekiel 4, just a random thing that happened I thought was kind of cool, talking about strange stuff that happens. Ezekiel is told by God to bake bread over a fire that was lit by cow manure. So he takes cow manure, lights it on fire, and bakes bread over this fire as, again, as a message to the people that they are living in sin and evil. John the Baptist, another prophet. Think about him for a moment. What do you know about John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist is some kind of crazy man. Out in the middle of the desert, he's, he's wearing animal skins. He's, he's eating weird stuff. He's speaking in a way that nobody had ever heard in his day. So when we look at the prophets, both minor and major prophets, there's some strange stuff happening. Well, Hosea is asked to do something unlike anything the prophets have been asked to do. And, and he's going to... He's going to embody a message. God is going to give him a message to this northern kingdom. But not only is he going to embody a message, his family life is going to be a testimony of God to the nation. And what he asked Hosea to do is absolutely amazing. All the way back in Exodus 20, uh, we have the Ten Commandments. You remember what the first commandment is. The first commandment says is that we will have no other gods before Jehovah God. And in that, in that commandment, he says that we'll not set up any graven images, we'll not set up any statues, that Jehovah God is going to have our full attention. And then he says this. He says, for I am a jealous God. Have you ever thought about what that means, a jealous God? Now, jealousy, the way we understand it in our context, is, is that you've got something I want, and I'm angry because you've got it and I don't. And, and I deserve what you have, but it's not mine. Jealousy in that context is sin. The Bible talks about envy and jealousy and strife, that that jealousy is not to be something we are to strive for. As a matter of fact, we are to reject it and not live that way. So how is it that that God says that he's jealous? And how is it that God doesn't sin? Because we know that he's perfect and pure. Here's the point. When God says, you'll have no other gods before me, and then he adds to that, I am a jealous God, what he's saying is, is that it's not that he, he wants something he doesn't own. No, it's that what he does own, he wants the full devotion from what he owns. In other words, he says to the nation of Israel, have no other gods before me, and I want your full attention, full devotion on me. So therefore, I am jealous for you, not because I want something I can't have. It's because I own you. You're part of my kingdom, and I expect full devotion from you. Let me ask you a question. What has your attention? Over the last several weeks since March, your, your whole life has been turned upside down. Your, your, um, the things that you do each and every week, uh, your, uh, your schedule, uh, your, the way you do things around your house, the way you go shop for groceries, the way you go out to get something to eat, everything has changed. And it changed overnight. 
and it's not let up yet. And so the question is, in all of this distraction and all of this change, what has your attention? Because my concern as a pastor and my concern for a flock, Bobby was just talking about the 99, the flock that God has, has given me care over. One of my concerns is, is that through all of this distraction is that we're being distracted. That there are things that have taken our attention being out of the sequence of coming to church and gathering corporately. For those of you out there watching on the internet, you, you've kind of gotten used to watching the services online, but I've heard from many of you say it's just not the same, and I understand that. I really do. But in this moment of time and distraction, the question is, is, is there something that has our attention more than God? Because for the northern kingdom, something got their attention. And now God is going to speak to them through the prophet, not only in the message, but in how the prophet's going to live his life. Look at verse 2. When the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, a prostitute, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I believe that verse 2 is like the summary verse for the entire book of Hosea. That right here, God says to commands Hosea to go marry a woman who is a prostitute. Her name is, is Gomer. And, and God says, I'm going to use your marriage to this prostitute and the kids that are going to become the result in your household. I'm going to use that as a living illustration as the relationship between me and the northern kingdom, Israel. He says that the nation has forsaken the Lord, turned their back on him. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and, he, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So Hosea marries Gomer, who is a prostitute, and then a child is born. And God says to Hosea, I want you to name this son Jezreel because in the valley of Jezreel, there was all these battles that happened. If you remember a woman by the name of Jezebel who was just evil to the core, she kills Naboth and takes his vineyard. Guess where that was? The valley of Jezreel. If you go back through the Old Testament, you'll find that there were bloody battles in this valley over and over. And what, what God is saying to Hosea through the birth of this son and the name Jezreel, he's saying to the northern kingdom, there's going to come a day where you are going to be overrun. You are going to be judged, and no longer will you be a military might. You're going to be weakened, and you're going to be brought to your knees. And there, no matter how many, how many chariots you have, no matter how many bows you've got, you will not be able to stand when this judgment comes. And, of course, God is talking about the nation Assyria. At this very time, this nation is growing in power and influence, and they're overtaking nation after nation. And the Assyrians have their focus on the northern kingdom. And God is going to use that kingdom to bring judgment upon Israel. Look at verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. They have a daughter. And God instructs Hosea to name that daughter no mercy, or another way to put it would be no love. Can you imagine that? That, that the daughter's name is going to be no love. God says, I know what you've been doing. I know what you're up to. 
And, and I'm going to stop showing you mercy if you continue to go down the path you're on. Then look at verse 8. And when she had weaned new, uh, no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for I am no longer your God. This is incredible. God says, I'm going to take this family and I'm going to use it as a living illustration of the brokenness between the nation of Israel who've been set apart for God and God himself. He says, you are not my people and I am not your God. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. So here we have Hosea married to Gomer. Gomer is a prostitute and children have been born. I want to come back to that in just a minute. As a matter of fact, the whole book of Hosea focuses more on the children that have been born, even more than the marriage between Hosea and Gomer. You probably figured this out, but Gomer represents not only just the northern kingdom of Israel, but the leadership of that northern kingdom. Because I want you to see what was happening in this kingdom and what was causing God to step in and intervene and send the prophet. Chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now, wait a minute. Didn't God just say no mercy and no love? Didn't God just say that, that I am fed up and I'm no longer your God and you're no longer my people? This is one of the struggles anytime we read the major amount of prophets. On the one hand, the prophet says, you're going to be judged. But then almost immediately in, a, in another sermon and another, in another message, the prophet brings forward that there's going to be grace and that there's going to be a time where God's going to restore them. And what we've got to understand is that the covenant promises between God and these people, God will not break those promises. So on the one hand, yes, they're going to be judged. On the other hand, God is going to do something amazing through this prophet into this northern kingdom. Look at verse 2. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So this northern kingdom, the leadership of the northern kingdom, here's what they were doing. They were taking the worship of Baal, which was a false god, and they were taking that worship and they were introducing it into the kingdom of Israel who recognized that there's only one true God. And what they did is just like we talked about in that buffet line or in that line at the restaurant where you can pick all these different things, the nation of Israel had picked Baal and have introduced Baal worship into the kingdom of Israel who had been set apart for Jehovah God only. And those leaders were leading the nation not only to worship Baal, but to honor him, to sacrifice to him, who was no God at all. So, so God says to the prophet, he says to the prophet, go to the common people of Israel. Go to the common people, not the leaders, and say to those common people, go to your leaders, which is represented by the mother. Go to your mother and say to her, listen, God, your husband, has turned his back on you. He's no longer your husband. You are no longer his wife because you are committing adultery with a false god. Just as Hosea's wife was a prostitute, the northern kingdom had prostituted themselves out by pursuing another God. He says here, verse 4, back up to verse 3, he says, For I, lest I will strip her naked and make her in the day as she was born, 
and I will make her like a wilderness, and I will make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. God is serious here. He's saying to that northern kingdom, if you don't turn around, if you don't repent, if you don't respond to my love and my mercy and my pursuit, I will judge you. He says here in verse 5, For their mother has played the whore, who conceived them has acted shamefully. Here's an amazing possibility. Those three children that were born, if you just read through it, you think that, that those three children are the result of Hosea and Gomer having children together. The reality is, is it's very possible that it's possible that all three of those children are the result of her prostitution. Jezreel may have been Hosea's child, the other two. It's possible that they are the result of Gomer stepping out on the marriage. Now, if you begin to think about this, think about what a laughingstock Hosea was. He's a, he's a prophet of God, yet he's married to a prostitute who is consistently causing and committing adultery, and yet he continues to seek God, obey God, and give the message of God to the people. But you can say the same thing. The same thing is about the nation of Israel, that they have been blessed by God. They've been called by God. They've been set apart by God. They were given freedom from Egyptian bondage, and yet they are aligning themselves with Baal. How foolish. Just as foolish as it was for the nation to laugh at Hosea was it was for them to commit themselves to a false god. Verse 5 again, he says, For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Israel is pursuing this false god because she believes that it's bringing all of these creature comforts into her life, that now they have food and water and wine and, and clothing. And, and when Israel would look at the nations around them and, and look at their worship of Baal, they thought that, man, they've got it made. They don't have to do the things that we have to do. They've got all these things. They're being blessed by their false gods. So certainly, maybe we should pursue those gods. This was one of the concerns that Joshua had hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, that when Joshua was going to lead the people into Israel, into the promised land, he told them that if they begin to align themselves with the false gods in that land, if they begin to intermarry, that God would judge them. Joshua would say, choose this day who you're going to serve. Joshua would say that he's already chosen. He's going to serve God. The people on that day said, make no mistake about it. We're going to, we're going to serve Jehovah God. We're going, to be, we're going to be pursuing him. And here we are several hundred years later, and the nation has completely, completely given themselves over to idol worship. And not only that, if you'll look at verse 8, look at verse 8. God says, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Here, here's another amazing thing, that God, the good husband, provided for his wife Israel with food and water, gold and silver, before God begins to judge the nation, the nation had incredible wealth. But as God begins to judge them, he, he begins to 
destroy their harvest. They, they go through a drought where they, they have no food. They, they go from being having plenty of food to almost starving to death. And God says that they took the wine, the oil, and the clothing, and the silver, and the gold, and they would go offer that on the altars to a false god. It would be like a spouse who steps out on their husband or wife to commit adultery and drives the brand new car that the spouse just bought to try to reconcile the marriage, takes the car, drives to meet the mistress or the lover, takes what has been given and uses it for sin and evil. That's exactly what's happening. In Hosea's house, he is taking care of, of Gomer. He's, he's blessing her, making sure that food and water and everything is there. And what is she doing? Using what's been given to her to go commit adultery on him. That is what's happening with the northern kingdom. God says, they didn't even realize that I gave it to them. And what I did give to them, they're using an idol worship. The nation is being misled by its leaders. There's a whole generation of people here who don't even know who their father is. They've not heard anything other than Baal, and they mix Baal in with the worship of God, and they don't even know who their father is. A whole nation being misled. A whole generation who don't even know who Jehovah God is, the God of their fathers who led them out of Egypt, the God of their fathers who brought them into the land and gave them the land and drove out all the other people, the God who, who drove out nations stronger than them. They don't even know who he is. We live in a generation very similar to this. We have a whole generation of people, ages of 20s and their teens, late 20s, who have no idea who Jesus Christ is. They have no idea what the gospel is. They think that when we gather here or when we, when we send messages out online, they think it's just some kind, of, some kind of other religion that's out there among many religions and they're all the same. And the majority of that generation are what we call the nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S. In other words, they have no faith in organized religion of any kind. Or if they do, they've went down the buffet line and grabbed a little of this and a little of this and a little of this, and they're worshiping a false god. I think what I see more than anything else is people who worship themselves. I'm in control, it's my truth, and my truth is what's true, and your truth can be true, even if those two truths contradict one another. You can have your truth, and I can have mine, and, and I can live to myself, and as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I can do whatever I want to do. What we've got now are people who are living as gods themselves, who think they're in control, who think that they're in control of everything that happens in their life, when in fact, they're not in control of anything. They fooled themselves. And I wonder if it's because... The generation ahead of them, they didn't see a devotion, a faithfulness to God alone. You would imagine that God at this point would just give up on them, right? Just wipe his hands clean of the whole deal. If you go back through the Old Testament, there's times with Moses where God looks at Moses and says to Moses, look, I'm done with these people. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses steps in and says, wait a minute, God, I know you love these people. These people bear your name. And God extends grace. You would imagine that God would just give up on these people. Back up to verse 6. I want you to see this, how God responds to this northern kingdom who have consciously turned their back on him. Verse 6, he says, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns so that she cannot find her path. I will build a wall against her. She will pursue her lovers, but she will, but she will not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. 
Then she shall say, I will return to my first husband, for it was better for me than for now. In other words, God is not going to give up. He's going to do exactly the opposite. He's going to pursue this northern kingdom in love. That's why he sent Hosea. That's why he told Hosea to marry Gomer. He wants the nation to know that he is coming after them. But it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. Notice what else he says. Therefore, verse 9, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were meant to cover her nakedness. And not only that, I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of all her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. God says, I'm going to hem her in. I'm going to build a wall around her. I'm going to protect her. I'm going to cause her to not be able to run towards her lovers. And at the same time, I'm going to remove the food and the grain and the wine and the gold and the silver. And yes, there's going to be some suffering, but the point of that suffering is to drive her back into my arms. Guess what God does? To the one, he pursues it. He pursues you. And guess what he does? He, he uses the circumstances of your life. He, he brings pain into your life and difficulty in your life to drive you back into it. He's not angry with you trying to drive you away. He's trying to bring you back into the fold. And he'll use circumstances to do it. He says, he says over in verse, um, one of these, he says here that he's going to seek her and take her into the wilderness He's going to take her out there and have a have a discussion with her and tell her tell him that he's going to tell her that that she, that he loves her. Look at verse fourteen. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That's exactly the opposite of what you would expect, right? I mean, if they want this other God, then let them have it. But God in His infinite grace and His infinite mercy. Back up to verse thirteen. He says, "And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baal." Worship when she offered burnt offerings. And then what do you think they're offering on those burnt offerings? What do you think the nation of Israel is putting on those altars as burnt offerings to, to Baal? The food, the animals, the very things that God has given them, they're turning around and using for Baal worship. She adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers. And here it is, verse 13. And they forgot me. Isn't that exactly where all this leads? When something else takes priority in your life, you forget what matters most. When something else takes your time, your focus, your energy, that becomes the focus of your life, the foundation of your life, and the things that really matter, the things that should be happening, the things that have really changed your life, you completely forget about them. Your routine has changed. You, you've not been able to, to come and gather here. And even those that are coming and gathering here find that things are very different. And my concern is, is that other things will take your focus. That other things will become priority in your life. And you'll forget about Christ who gave you life and purpose and meaning. Our hope is, is that you're worshiping at home and you're continuing to be in God's Word at home. And I trust that that's happening. But I'm going to tell you something. Satan will use this and has used it and will use it as a distraction. Why? Because he wants your attention on lesser things, lesser gods. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's money, fame, fortune, power, whatever it is. He will love to distract you towards lesser things so that you spend your entire life on something that is meaningless. God says to the nation, I'm going to pursue you, but it's going to be painful. 
and the circumstances of life. And in this how it works that, that God allows these circumstances into our life. And in that moment, we, we realize maybe for the first time in a long time that God is truly the source of our life and we run back to him. That's the whole point. Notice what he says here in verse 16. He says, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of Baals from her mouth. How is he going to do that? Through the grace and the mercy, the love, and yes, the circumstances of pain and hunger and difficulty. God is going to hem in this nation to where they can't turn anywhere else but back to him. And in that day, there's going to be a restoration. In that day, there's going to be reconciliation. But he goes even further. Look at verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice Steadfast love and mercy. When does that happen? Well, even though the northern kingdom finally does repent, it's only after Assyria basically steamrolls the place. And then after the Babylonians destroy the southern kingdom, there's a time of of renewed and revival and interest and focus and worship of God. But over several hundred years, the next thing you know, instead of turning back to idols, the the nation turns inward and they, they begin to to uh, take God's law and God's word and turn it for something inward. And not only that, they take power and control. And rather than worshiping and honoring God, they go through the rituals. And what ends up happening is idolatry creeps back in. But the idolatry that we find in the Jewish nation when Jesus comes is a focus on themselves, not a focus on God. So when does this happen? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This betrothal, this marriage. How how does the New Testament see this? How how do we how do we understand this from a New Testament perspective? Well, Paul in speaking to the church at Corinth gives us some perspective. The fact is that everybody's worshiping something. Even an atheist who doesn't even believe in God puts their faith in science, that that is the end all and answers all of life's questions. Notice what Paul says to the church at Corinth. Because the same exact issue that is happening in the northern kingdom has crept into the church in Corinth, but with a different context. Notice this, verse 1, I wish you would bear with me a little while in foolishness. Please do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Where do we, where do we hear that? A divine jealousy. Well, in Exodus 20. God says, I am jealous for you. In other words, I own you. You are part of my kingdom, and therefore nothing will come between you and I. That divine jealousy that is not a sin, Paul says to the church at Corinth, I have a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. Who is that husband? Jesus Christ. That the church, the body of Christ, the church is the bride of Christ. And that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for the bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 and following, it says that Jesus Christ gave up his life for the church. And then he says, husbands, love your wives the same way. First, Second Corinthians chapter 11, he says, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In other words, that the bride of Christ is to remain pure, devoted to one. Not devoted to many, not giving our time and our resources to something less than, but, but the church of Jesus Christ is to be devoted and focused, set apart for the bridegroom. 
Then he says this, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Just as the northern kingdom was deceived into worshiping a false god, so it is with the church at Corinth that Satan is doing exactly the same thing. He's misleading, getting the church to put their focus on something less than the bridegroom, something that will profit them nothing. He says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with this readily enough. Paul says, look, here's what's happening. False teachers are coming in, and they're telling you about something that is not the bridegroom. They're getting your attention on lesser gods. They're teaching a false gospel. They're trying to get you to follow a false god, and you've been set apart for the bridegroom. And you are to remain pure. You are to remain holy. You are to remain true to your bridegroom. I go back to the question I posed at the beginning. Does something else have your attention? My goodness, we've got lots of distractions. Even, even without COVID-19, we, we got tons of distractions. Is there something else that has your attention? Well, I want to go through a few questions here just to help us maybe, maybe see with, with clear eyes that we may, in fact, have a false god that we're devoting our lives to. Not like a, a bronze statue with burning incense. Often when we think of auditory, we think of that. Some, some false statue we've set up in our home. And while there are some who do that predominantly, in this context, probably not. There are probably other things. So let me ask you first, is God first? Now, let me, let me clarify that statement. We're quick to say, yes, God is first. But is God only first on Sunday? Is he first on Monday? And is he first on Tuesday? Is, is God first at, at 11 o'clock at night when you've got the laptop open and there's nobody else watching? Is God first when, when you are ready to, to give something of your life? Are you giving it to something that matters? Is God first? Not just prioritized on Sunday, but I'm talking about throughout the week. Is he the first one you run to when trouble comes? Are, are you running to him for counsel, to his word for counsel? Secondly, what do you spend your money on? Yeah, you know I had to go there. Where do you spend your resources? Is, is what you're spending your income on on things that God values and that, that God says is a priority? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, he said this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know what he's saying? He's saying that whatever you treasure most and whatever you focus most is going to get your income, your time, your talents, and all your treasure. And maybe, maybe once a week on a Sunday morning, you can, you can devote a little attention to God, but the rest of the week, you've got a whole nother God in your life, and He gets all of your attention. He gets all of your finances. What about who's influencing you? What is driving the decisions that you're making? Are you more concerned about your image on Facebook and what people think about you there? You know, we can have influences in our life that we don't even recognize. Who's in that inner circle of yours? Who, who are, who's that circle of friends, and, and, and do they have the same worldview that you do, and do they think about the world the same way you do? 
Here's another way to think about it. Who are you trying to impress? Who, who are you trying to, to show off in front of? Well, if you'll look there, you may find that you have a false god in your life. Fourth, what about your spiritual diet? With all this extra time that you've had, how are you spending that time? How's your spiritual diet? Are you taking in God's Word? Are you going to deeper places in prayer now that you've got more time? Which leads to the final one, your time. How are you spending your time? As we go through these questions, as we think about them, you may be able to uncover something in your life that has become a priority in your life more than the one who called you out of darkness and the light. And I think it's well worth our time to stop and to consider that we may very well, in fact, have something less than God that's getting all of our attention and all of our priority. Father in heaven, if that's the case, if that's the case, then Father, we know you are a gracious, loving, merciful, heavenly Father. And Lord, you will use circumstances You'll use difficulty, you'll use pain to do the same thing to us that you did to, to the northern kingdom, to hem us into a corner so that we will turn back to you in repentance, have a change of mind and a change of action based on your mercy and your grace. So, Father, maybe over the course of this, we, we realize that there are some things in our lives that are taking priority. It could be money. It could be a person. It could be a job. It could be any host of things. But if those things are taking priority over you, then, Father, we are just as guilty as the northern kingdom was so many years ago. But, Father, just as much as your grace and mercy was available to them, it's available to us. So, Father, may we turn our hearts and our minds back to you, seeking your forgiveness and your restoration. We ask it in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.